Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In the birth narrative for women, it's a continuum, isn't it? That, um, look, you can have the birth pool and the candles and and, and all um, a really zen birth and you can have the other end of the scale for that and everywhere in between. That was Dr. Jan Smith on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. Psychologists Off the Clock is happy to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. With Praxis, you can really transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training. And they're really the premier provider in continuing education for clinical professionals. Praxis has both on-demand courses as well as live online courses. They have beginner offerings like Act One from Matt Boone or more advanced offerings like Act Immersion with Steve Hayes. Some of their live online courses include classes in dialectical behavior therapy, superhero therapy, and act with parents. You can get a coupon code for Praxis Continuing Education on our website, offtheclockpsych.com, for some of their live offerings. And we can really attest to the quality of Praxis. We've both participated in it ourselves and have seen its benefits in our clinical work. So visit our offers page at offtheclockpsych.com. Hi, this is Debbie. Our previous episode was on pregnancy loss, and today we're kind of following that theme. We have an episode that I'm bringing you today with Dr. Jan Smith, who is an expert on birth trauma. In the episode, Jan brings her wisdom and experience to teach us about birth trauma, and I share a little bit of my own personal story with my experience with birth trauma. And I'm here today with Jill to introduce the episode. And Jill, you said that you listened to the episode and you have a birth trauma story as well. I do. And, you know, Debbie, when I listened to this, I was sharing with you earlier, I was sort of tearful listening to the whole episode. I'm getting tearful right now. It was really triggering, but 
I felt like you sharing your story was so important because we know each other pretty well. And I had no idea that you had been through that. And I thought, you know what? I bet Debbie has no idea that I've been through this. And it felt so validating for me to hear about your experience. And I thought, you know, during this intro, maybe I can share a little bit of mine. And my hope is that our listeners will hear these stories and feel validated too for their experiences. Um, And also maybe even seek help if they don't realize they need it. You know, I think what became clear for me. So when I had my son, my second child, um, it turned out I had placenta accreta that was missed. Um, In fact, I was assessed for it. I had an MRI and they said, nope, you're clear. You don't have it. And it's a serious problem that can cause a person to bleed out and, and die unless you get a hysterectomy at the time of the birth. And they said, I didn't have it. And I had a massive blood loss. Um, And the most traumatic part was my son had to go to the NICU. He had some respiratory stuff and he had to go to the NICU and they wouldn't bring him to me. And I was only allowed to see him if I could get myself up out of bed and into a wheelchair and I couldn't do it. So I didn't see him for quite some time. And what's interesting to me about that is when my daughter, my firstborn was born, I felt like I bonded with her instantly. And it was a, it was a, um, you know, normal, easy, like mild complications, but no big deal. And with my son, it probably took up to a year for us to like truly bond for that, for that bond to grow. Um, And I never realized that this had a pretty significant and long-standing impact on me. The fact that just listening to this episode had me crying instantly, talking about it has me crying. And it was eight years ago. And I've seen multiple medical providers who have asked about the story and just jotted notes down and never, and I'm crying every time I tell the story and never has anyone said, you know, have you ever thought about talking to someone about this? And I realized when Jan was talking about some of the the ways that the impacts can show up. So she talks about engaging in checking behavior or staying very close to your child. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I had this kind of aha moment that after Liam was born, I developed what would be considered postpartum OCD. And I feel very grateful. I actually am an OCD specialist in my practice. So I knew just what to do. So it didn't stick. But I would have intrusive images where I would be holding him and he was a teeny tiny frail little peanut. He was born a month early. And I would walk through a doorway or past a like the railing to my stairs. And I would have an image of smashing his head against the the, you know, the pole or or the doorway. And it was so awful and so painful. And I knew that this was OCD like things and I knew what to do with it. So it didn't stick around. But for someone who doesn't have our training, they wouldn't know that. And that this could be something like, or other kinds of anxiety that could result as that, that could result from a birth trauma like mine. And, and I think the thing that I really, I want to say is because ultimately I was fine and Liam was fine. He was very tiny his first four months of life. And then he just blew up into this very big, healthy child (laughs) that I felt like I couldn't get therapy or like I shouldn't need it. You know, I'm fine. He's fine. It's all fine. What do I have to be upset about? And I loved that Jan really talked about how you can certainly have the, the extreme birth trauma or the, you know, perfect uneventful birth, but there are so many different things that can happen in between those two extremes. And that even if your outcome was okay, that doesn't make the birth experience any less traumatic and that it's okay to reach out. Jill, I'm tearing up listening to your story and you're right. I had no idea. I think we met each other when our children were several years old, so we didn't really know this about each other, but I do think you're right. It speaks to how we just don't talk about it enough, right? And I, I think that that period, whether it's a difficult pregnancy, whether it's a traumatic birth, whether it's trouble breastfeeding or postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, an issue with the baby, you know, a premature baby in the NICU or whatever the case may be, I think that there's a lot of different ways in which people who give birth might struggle during pregnancy, during birth, after birth. 
And I just think that it's important for people to talk about it more so that everyone gets the support that they need because there are resources out there and support out there. Um, we're not trying to you know, scare anyone who's considering having a child or a baby someday, but rather to just say, like, let's talk about it. Let's support each other as we go through this. Right. And, and I actually think that maybe part of the reason we sometimes don't talk about it is I know, you know, if I'm with somebody who's thinking of having a baby or is pregnant, like I don't want to tell them about my trauma experience and scare them. But the person who had that traumatic experience sure wishes someone had talked to me beforehand about theirs. So this idea that we shouldn't scare people, but also that's part of not talking about it. So then people don't know. Um, you know, that these things can happen and maybe happen more commonly. And, you know, the other thing I think about is sort of like a trauma after the trauma, you know, that happens a lot when someone has a traumatic experience, it's then how someone responds to it can add to the trauma. And I know I got the support I needed from some people. One of my best friends flew across the country to help take care of my two-year-old, which was just, you know, it's just something I'll never forget. But there were other people in my life who I really needed, who didn't show up for me, even when I asked. Um, And I actually treated a patient who came to me for birth trauma specifically. And one of her biggest struggles was the lack of support she got from her spouse and from her family and other loved ones. Um, And so I'm not sure what the lesson is there because I want us to talk about it and I want us to reach out and ask for help. But I think there's also this other piece of, like the messaging we get that women have just, women have been having babies since the dawn of time, that there's something that's like, it's also, even if you ask for help, you're not necessarily getting what you need and maybe not to give up at that point, you know, yeah. to, to, to try to figure out like what else you need and, and maybe to reach out to a professional rather than a friend or family member. Yeah. Or at least someone who understands it, right? Maybe someone who can have compassion or who's been there before themselves or who has an awareness or, you know, I think if episodes like this one are available to people, maybe more people will get that. And then the next time someone they know, you know, goes through something like this, we'll be able to support them better. Yeah, they can share the episode. That's right. (laughs) I'm happy to have Dr. Jan Smith with us today to talk to us about birth trauma. Jan is a chartered psychologist, executive coach, and the director of Healthy You Limited. She's worked with individuals and organizations for over 15 years, providing psychological support for trauma, moral injury, and stress to individuals, and creating psychologically safe and positive working cultures and organizations. In 2014, Jan developed the Birth Trauma Services at Healthy You, which supports moms, birthing partners, and staff who are affected by birth trauma. Jan has extensive experience in helping families through their litigation process, particularly in cases where their child sustained life-changing injuries at birth. She campaigns to improve safety and maternity services for family and staff, and she's the clinical lead at the National Birth Trauma Campaign, Make Birth Better, and the lead for the Parliamentary Working Group for Birth Trauma. She also provides training in the UK and internationally to maternity students and healthcare professionals on birth trauma and its impact. She is an expert advisor on a number of committees providing input into maternity services. She has a new book out called Nurturing Maternity Staff and an upcoming book in November called Managing PTSD for Health and Social Care Professionals. And she also has two more in the works. Is that right, Jan? Uh, Birth trauma and perinatal anxiety. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And um, both act workbooks for clients. Wonderful. Look forward to those. And I've been looking through your book that's out. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really happy that you're you're here today. Yeah, likewise. So I'm very curious. This You are really doing some incredible work in this area, Jan. And I just imagine that this must be a passion for you, working in this area of birth trauma. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the values that led you in this direction. And maybe some of the rewards and challenges of this work. Yeah, Um, I guess I, uh, when I finished university, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But what I really value is connecting with people and also being helpful. 
And so actually, in, in when I look back, maternity has always been a thread through the work that I've done. So I started off as a mental health um, coordinator for um, homeless people with um, issues with addiction. And actually what I was doing there was supporting um, sex workers and um, women who were substance and alcohol dependent um, through their birthing journey. Um, so I was their birth partner and um, would do a lot of the advocacy. So I think that's where it really ignited my passion for, I guess, people who are missed or misrepresented in society to really advocate for their rights um, and to get the service that if you were born a different nationality or a different class, that you would get. So that really ignited my value around advocating for people who really needed it. And I just fell into birth trauma, really, because I was seeing that a lot of families who were perceived perhaps uh, in, in teams that were working with them as behaviours like they were controlling Actually, when you went in and spoke to the families, they were really traumatized and they were trying to make sense of their experience through control, which we mm know -hmm. psychologists is a classic trauma response. But I think that was really difficult for team the teams that they were working with to manage. So um yeah, at some of the challenges it can feel very heavy work. Um, you know, people aren't coming to see me. Um, they, they come to see me when things have not only gone wrong, but disastrously wrong. Do you know, there has been either death of mum, death of baby, or life-changing injuries for mum and or baby. Um, through negligence, um, medical negligence. So it's can, the work can feel really heavy. I guess one of the rewards, um, and when I think about it, it is, and, and you'll know as a psychologist, is in that real dark space where people are grieving or adjusting to life and you are able to provide a ray of hope and they hold on to that no matter how small that is and they roll with it that is totally like ah oh, that is my heart that is what I do and that is an incredibly rewarding part of the work that I feel really privileged to to do and share that space with them yeah it's very meaningful I just happen to have a period of time recently when grief was showing up in my practice unexpectedly a lot, mm -hmm. all of a sudden. And I thought it, just, it feels hard. And it also just feels really special to be with people at that place where they just need support and you're able to provide something. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. One thing I think is really interesting is that you work both with families who experience birth trauma and also with staff, with maternity staff. And I had never really thought much before I started looking at your work about how the two of those can really go together. Um, yeah. And yeah, and also how maternity staff also can be traumatized and how it really impacts them as well. I mean, I know healthcare workers, you know, the it's stressful in general mm -hmm. right now to be in a healthcare profession, mm -hmm. but I think there's some special um, stressors related to that. So I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about why it's important to talk about both sides and, and what are some of those stressful aspects of working with maternity staff? Yeah. Um, and I think Debbie, as you say, it's really important to draw attention that actually the impact on staff and the impact on families is just the other side of the same coin. And actually, especially in the UK over the last 
year probably there has been a huge, huge drive in maternity around patient safety. And we can't have a conversation about patient safety in the absence of having a conversation about the mental health and well-being of staff. Because if we're tired, if we are fatigued, if we haven't eaten in a 12-hour shift or had those basic needs met, that is significantly going to impact on people's judgment um, and their clinical judgment as well and things get missed. But also when you ask about some of the stressors within maternity, there was some research done a few years ago in Australia by Hannah Dallin looking at in particular what um, midwives fear the most in their jobs. And for them, it, it was ranked one to 10, 10 being the, the most primary thing that they're fearful of. And the death of a baby or mum, the bullying culture, there can be in maternity a huge bullying culture between staff. Um, not being able to deliver the kind of care that they've been trained to do. So when we here in the UK, we know that for every 30 midwives that are trained, two years later, there will only be one midwife still practising. So there is a massive, in that first two years, there is a massive amount of midwives that leave the profession. And when the research has looked at exactly what's going on in that two-year period, there are a number of things, high levels of anxiety, depression, and also the pressures on midwives who self-identify as having a disability. But actually what I hear in practice are those things, but also something different that Midwife means to be with women. That's the literal translation of it. And actually, when midwives qualify, what they realize is they're not with women. They're with paperwork. They're with the system. So there is a mismatch between what they thought the role was going to be and actually what it is for them. And in that process of that mismatch, and they're not able to deliver the care that they're trained to do, that moral code that they have of being able to deliver women-centered care, irrespective of race, um, uh, uh, the background of the person, what they realize is they're not able to deliver that care because of lack of resources, staff shortages, or it's just not possible. And so that's where I see they are becoming morally injured. So this range of moral distress that they then, because their professional values are compromised. And we know, you know, as, as ACT practitioners, when you move away from what is really important to you in not only your personal, but of course your professional life and your professional identity, that's wounding, That's bre- that breaks some part of you and the shame and guilt that that can create in a lot of the maternity staff that I see. Yeah, it's so such an important point you're making here that the two go together and for everyone to be safe, we have to take care of our maternity staff and people who are working in healthcare. We, we actually did an episode of If Anyone's Interested a little over a year ago in the early days of COVID about healthcare professional well-being. Mm-hmm. And I think in the case of maternity, it, it, it is a very high stakes situation. And for everyone to be coming from a place where they're getting the resources they need and they're able to do their best work. Um, mm-hmm. And yet it's so stressful that that's not always the case. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and I think particularly in maternity, there's something There's a huge contradiction in a really supposed nurturing um, profession that actually they're not nurtured themselves. They don't feel valued, a lot of them. 
That's so sad. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about some of the basics here. I'm very curious, how would you define birth trauma? What is it? What are we talking about here? And and what are some of the the things, maybe some examples or the things that we might consider to be traumatic birth? Yeah. What comes to mind straight away is the Cheryl Becks who coined the phrase, um, trauma is in the eye of the beholder. So um, for birth trauma, um, it is a very subjective experience of trauma. So what might have obstetrically looked very straightforward for in terms of a birth. So there was no emergency. um, It was a vaginal birth. um, It looked there wasn't any anything untoward obstetrically. Then. A lot of women then feel like, I don't really know why I'm feeling the way that I do. However, we know that your interpersonal um, uh, reactions with your caregiver, so those maternity staff, if you're unkind as a maternity worker, if you have um, been hostile, that that person, birth and person, will be able to, that might have been traumatic at that time. Like if you can imagine how vulnerable you are when you are in labour and then someone is really mean to you, the person that you trust. So if there is an element of trust being broken, that can be it. It can also be your labour was very quick, do you know, so that... Do you know, as women, I think on a societal level, we are totally given a really false narrative that giving birth is the best day of your life, do you know? And it is for some women, however, it's not for many others. And also a quick labour is what you want. A quick labour can be very um, traumatising for some women. Also, if you don't feel like you got the support that you um, needed during your birth. And it could be things like there is more obvious obstetric interventions. So the more interventions that are introduced in birth, the higher you are susceptible to experience in your birth as traumatic. If there was an emergency, if you thought you were going to die or your baby or you thought your baby was going to die, Those are all examples um, of trauma and birth trauma. It seems like there's a really pretty big range of what Mm -hmm. can be a stressful or traumatic scenario. Um, And it's interesting. I'll just tell my own quick personal story. I think my first birth, I have two kids. My first birth was kind of in the gray area of this where I didn't think of it as traumatic at the time, really, because I didn't have a frame of reference. But when I started reading your work, and I heard you speak on a panel at a conference, I thought to myself, actually, mine kind of was because my Mm. my first baby weighed nine pounds when she was born, and I'm only five foot three. And so she kind of got stuck. And it was kind of a I didn't really understand what was happening in that Mm. moment. But it was a very hard birth very hard. And I, it took me a very long time to recover physically, but Mm -hmm. since I didn't have a frame of reference, like you said, it's in the eye of the beholder. I just thought that was how birth is. And then when I had Mm -hmm. my second baby, it was so much easier. I mean, she was smaller. She was born a little bit earlier. I had already had a baby. Mm -hmm. I felt better the day I gave birth than I did Mm -hmm. like three months after my first birth. And I thought, well, no wonder I was struggling so much. Mm. I felt terrible. I mean, for a yeah. long time and it was very Absolutely. hard. Yeah. And and how do you think, Debbie, if someone at that time had said to you, could it be or that this is a thing? How do you think your experience might have been or your recovery might have been different? I think it would have made more sense to me because I just think I didn't. I just didn't feel good for so long Mm -hmm. physically. I think I was struggling. Like everything kind of just felt harder to me Mm -hmm. and overwhelmed. Like even I remember just like trying to give 
my daughter her first bath and it just felt like this Mm. monumental (laughs) task. I think it would have helped me make more sense of my struggle. For sure. And so I think it would have, yeah, it would have just helped my frame of reference to know that at the time. Instead, I just, I didn't know that that's why Mm. it was so hard. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a huge part in birth stories, do you know, in the birth narrative for women. It's a continuum, isn't it? That, um, look, you can have the birth pool and the candles and and, and all um, a really zen birth and you can have the other end of the scale for that and everywhere in between. Yeah. Yeah, and there's some, I think you're right about the, false narratives about how it's supposed to be that sometimes we have we compare to some sort of ideal version of it and it can feel very mm. disappointing if it doesn't go the way we yeah ab- absolutely yeah for sure I mean for me I my births were fine but in my with my first child what I um again the movies and what you hear a lot is around you know, you pick your baby up and you have this instant feeling of like overwhelming love. And I was like, uh, I mean, I felt the evolutionary pull of protecting her, but I didn't get that. I am so in love with this. That was a grower for me. Do you know? So when I guess somebody just said it to me in an offhand comment about, oh, yeah, most people don't love their babies straight away. Do you know? I was like, oh, thank goodness. I am not abnormal. And this is us with our knowledge and psychological. Do you know, I had birthed even while I was doing this work. Do you know? So it's, yeah. Just need to talk more. Yes, normalizing that. I, mm. I saw an article about how a certain percentage of parents sometimes have doubts if they should have had kids or something mm. like this. And just that question pops to mind. And I think we should be talking about that more. That's not that abnormal, but it, there's almost a shame around this that it's For supposed sure. to not be like that. But it's, you know, it's hard. Absolutely. And I guess it's reaching... Rather than being the perfect parent, it's the good enough parent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being kind to ourselves in that. Mm, for sure. I think, you know, you you mentioned that I think you have passion around ensuring that quality care is available to everyone. And I learned on your panel at the conference that that I watched that there are disparities in the outcomes and also the care that's given. And and particularly as an example, there's racial disparity in birth outcomes. And I think that's really important. Could you talk a little bit about that and and what's going on there? Yeah. So um, we have in the UK, the statistics are incredibly alarming where women are five times more likely to die in childbirth than, um, and um, uh, brown women and Asian women are three times more likely to die. So there are massive disparities, although it has dropped down to four times more likely to die for black women. That's still massive. And I guess for those um, that I see, especially around um, where race has been a large part of the trauma, it is huge assumptions that are made around from maternity staff that they're higher risk, that they um, mightn't speak English. Um, And yeah, I think that confirmatory bias and those biases that we hold aren't really part of training. Do you know, in in healthcare, do you know, we all hold stereotypes, we all hold biases. And rather than hoping that we don't have them and that it doesn't play out in how we act and behave towards people, 
it's actually we need to understand what our own biases are in order to put things in place to safeguard against them and that impacting on the judgments that we make and staff might make when they're caring for these women. And it's harrowing to hear some of these women's experiences. Yeah, I think that's another thing that needs to be talked about more is that, you know, when there is a disparity in care and when assumptions are made and how that impacts people's lives mm. um, in these these really sad, horrible ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What are some of the potential long-term, you know, psychological impacts of traumatic birth that you might see and, and work with in your practice? Um. So some of the long term are dependent on the type of birth trauma and also if it's psychological and physical. Do you know if women have had a life changing physical injury as well or that they have had a birth trauma and their child has ended up with a life changing injury? I think that all compounds the trauma and we know as as um, psychologists, you know, you have the core trauma and then the layers that compound that trauma. And so sometimes the, the, the clients that I see and the issues that they present with are far, you know, the, the, a, a panoply of, of um, difficulties that could be, they come as a couple, and there's relationship issues, so um, perhaps with intimacy or sexual problems. It could be that um, the birth partner or the family member who was there witnessing the birth is traumatized, so that vicarious trauma. So um, the woman might feel like she hasn't had a trauma, but actually the observer has. It could be... Um, not being able to bond with their baby or connect with their baby. Or it could be actually that really overly checking behaviours, making sure that their baby is okay, needing them to be very, very close to them, even, you know, this is years down the line. Again, that behaviourally, that might be perceived and experienced by the other person as control. Um. And we know, right, don't we, that, you know, when you go into hospital or um, wherever you give birth, you expect everything's going to be fine. You expect that you're going to come out, it's all going to have been fine, and you'll come out with your baby. And when that doesn't happen and there's a massive breach of trust between that those people who were supposed to have cared for you haven't, and you've ended up with a psychological or physical injury or your baby has, or a death, that fundamentally breaks a trust that then can become generalised in relationships, in systems, and people don't feel like they can take a risk and go out into the world in a way that they had done before that happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then yeah. there's more physical things, you know, for some women who have perhaps ended up with a colostomy bag or um, life-changing physical injuries. That, again, is adjusting and managing that and their sense of identity and confidence in themselves returning to work. Um may not happen so it comes that sounds like such a long-winded I'm just hearing myself it sounds like such a long-winded way of answering your question that people can come with a vast array of difficulties and that they would never necessarily come with Jan I've had a birth trauma it's not often people will come with that as the primary issue. Oh, I could see that. First of all, that it there's so many different responses to birth trauma that to answer that question, you can't do it justice in mm-hmm. two sentences. And that sometimes 
the way that's showing up might not be an obvious, it might not be obvious that it's rooted in a trauma, that it's a trauma response, because it's more something that's happening in the person's life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Especially if the baby is okay. Yeah. Do you know, it's that thing of something, it might come through their responses and trying to regulate themselves. It could be, you know, I'm just drinking a bit too much. Or whenever my partner comes and we begin to initiate intimacy or any kind of sexual relations together, I go really rigid and something happens to me and I'm not really sure why. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm i glad you had acknowledged the partner who's involved, that it can be traumatic for them as well. And I've actually known mm. a couple of people where um, it was a male partner and the the wife giving birth was kind of wheeled off in an emergency and mm. the the husband is sitting there thinking, I don't know if my baby's going to make it or if my wife's going to make it. Um, I just, I'm just grateful that you acknowledge that that is also traumatic. For sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, I guess there's, that's a different narrative for if the partner is male, do you know, because, um, if his wife and baby then or partner and baby then are okay, there is that narrative around, well, I should just be fine. I should just be able to get on with it. So actually a lot of what in those instances um, dads might present with is, I just feel really, really angry a lot of the time and it's really out of character for me. So there is, or I'm due to go to the GP or the hospital and something really weird happens to me and I just end up avoiding it. I'm not sure why. Yeah. And connecting those dots may be part of the challenge. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So one other piece, I just want to kind of highlight this, um, is the NICU. (laughs) The NICU experience when the baby maybe is premature or has a complication. And I actually had a NICU experience myself as well, which I, Mm. I'm kind of telling a little bit of my own story here too. Mine was actually when my same first daughter was 13 days old, she got an infection and had to go Mm. on IV antibiotics. It took a couple Mm. of days to figure out why she had a fever. So it wasn't a preemie, you know, again, she was Mm. nine pounds, um, when she was born, but it wasn't a preemie situation, but I can really relate to just how difficult it was to be in the NICU with this tiny baby. And it's very stressful. Is that something that you also work with in your practice? Yeah. What, what are some of the stressors around that? I mean, Annie, the most obvious thing is, you know, as women, we are evolutionary programmed to have our little babies close to us. So that separation, do you know, is a massive um, difficulty and really difficult to navigate because rationally you know that your baby needs um, that support and that health care. Um, however, that's not what your body and your brain are programmed for. Your brain and body are programmed to have that little person really close to you a lot of the time. And also the intensity, what parents share with me is that intensity of being in a situation of not knowing, just as you say, those two days of what's happening to my baby. Do you know, is my baby going to be okay? Have I done something? I didn't really know what I was doing anyway, becoming a parent, you know, in that transition. Did I do something? Did I not do something? Do you know, can become internalized as guilt um, and never really finding out the answer as well. Do you know, if like example, your baby was in there for however long and you never really found out why she had the infection, I think what that can do then is when it, 
if that little person is able to return home, it increases the anxiety of checking those checking behaviors. Are they okay? What am I doing? So that hypervigilance that we know is present in um, trauma anyway becomes personified. Add in sleep deprivation on that. Do you know, we know sleep and disrupted sleep is another probably universal symptom of trauma. And so add that in on top of that. It is just a cocktail of potentially becoming quite unwell mentally. Yeah, it was, uh, in my experience, we were there for about two weeks and it was so exhausting on top of the regular newborn, you know, sleep deprivation. And it was the most just emotionally, I mean, I don't think I've ever cried more in my whole life than I did during that period because it's so sad to see your little baby there and you're so terrified and Mm. you're just busy doing all the things you have to do to, Mm. you know, take care of the child. But it's just, yeah, it's very, I feel for people and I, I think a big value for me behind conversations like this is helping people know they're not alone, that it is hard. And that if you're in that situation, I feel for you. Mm. It's just a very tough place to be. So I'm glad there are people, Jan, like you, who are out there Mm. supporting folks who have had these kinds of experiences. Yeah, yeah. And it takes, you know, I think for them to acknowledge that they're, they have needs in that space as well. Do you know, like what I will say to parents is, have you had a drink today? Have you had anything to eat? Do you know that basic need of it's okay to tend to your needs and be there for your little person? And that's not how most parents see the beginning of their journey into parenthood with that child. Yeah, so it's also making sense of that. Yeah. This isn't what this isn't what I signed up for. This yeah. isn't what I thought it would be. Exactly. It's um it's different than you had hoped. I mm. I had to buy a Father's Day card for my husband. It was his very first Father's Day. I had to mm. buy the card in the gift shop of the hospital because I yeah. was just there all the time and I thought this is so sad, his first Father's Day, and we're sitting here in Children's Hospital. Yeah. You know, just, that was another teary moment for me, because yeah. I think it was just so not what I expected. Yeah. Absolutely. So you've you've highlighted a few of the themes in your work to help people, you know, the avoidance and control. And I know that you take an ACT approach, and we talk in this podcast a lot about acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm. Um, and I'm sure, again, it's it, there's a huge range in what you're seeing in your practice, but are there just a couple of things you might want to highlight that are, I think, maybe helpful from the ACT approach in working with people who have experienced birth trauma? Yeah. Um, I guess, I mean, you know yourself, Debbie, that could be a whole podcast. In itself. Right, that's a big question. I absolutely, yes. absolutely. <laughs> Pick two. Um, right. I, I suppose two actually that come, that straight away came to my mind were picking your values as a parent. So what I do say to people is, Don't get too hung up on the detail of it. Just pick two or three that come to mind as the kind of parent that you want to be and what behaviours you might demonstrate that align with those values. So, for example, it could be if if we take um, the situation that you were in, um, Debbie, and your experience around being a NICU, you know, how do you square the type of parent you want to be in NICU when your little person isn't as accessible to you as if you were at home? So it could be you show up and you show up, you connect with them. So it's perhaps then getting more creative in how you connect with them. It might be you still do reading the stories that you thought you might be doing. It could be that you stroke their little hand or their, it could be you talk to them. It could be you show them photos. It could be your scent. 
So you start to then broaden out, okay, this definitely isn't the situation that I thought I was going to be in as a parent. However, how can I still do it in a way that is meaningful and valuable and connects with um, the type of parent that I want to be? Or if you are a parent of a child with a disability, I guess there's a huge amount of care that goes caring jobs, caring tasks. And it could be the way you do those tasks. So it could be, you know, you do those um, and rather than, and, and this could be not necessarily just with a disability, it could be anything, is that you talk to your little baby, you try and make eye contact, you um, kiss them, you do all of those things in a way while still doing those jobs that you need to do. So I think connecting with your values and what what that is, and that can be whatever you need that to be. Another one is expect that your mind is going to just be very, very loud. Very loud in the sense of it is going to show up and say things to you that are incredibly unhelpful. I mean, I'm sure you'll have um, things, Debbie, that your mind said to you. I remember when I was a parent for the first time and I couldn't get the pram up. It sounds really simple, doesn't it? But my mind just spatially doesn't work like that. So what I would do is avoid going out because, you know, I'm not even a good enough mum that I can put my baby into a stroller or pram and, and walk. Um, so I'll just stay inside. And actually what that was doing was taking me further away from being that parent that I wanted to be, which was go out, show my baby the trees. And all it needed for me to do, I say all now, actually it took an immense amount of courage at the time for me to do, was to say to um, my twin that came up, I don't know how to put up the prom. Mm -hmm. And this was a huge thing. So I think it's expecting that our minds are going to be really loud and how we can be compassionate in that space. So it could be, okay, if one of my friends or family came and said, Jan, you're useless because you can't even put up a pram, I would never respond in the way that I responded to myself. So it's maybe then, right, what would my best friend voice say right now in this space, in this moment? So I guess those are two things that jump out. Yeah, the kind of being a little kinder to yourself, but I also yeah. love that you acknowledged it and got some support around the, the pram example, like yeah. just that reaching out piece. I mean, whether it's to someone like yourself, a professional who could help with some very serious distress about mm. it or getting support from the people in your life mm. that you care about. And I think, again, the more people acknowledge their struggles around this, the better. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And stay off social media because actually that is such a false. There are some things on that that are really false on how it should be. So it's okay to unmute from that and actually find the space where you feel more safe on. Yes. Social media is ripe for comparison with yeah, <laughs> other absolutely. people's experience. Mm. Yeah. Well, and one one thing that I think is very interesting to think about from your work is the relationship between the person giving birth and the maternity staff, um, sort of during and after the process. And I think sometimes there's a breach of trust there, as mm. you talked about. I'm also just aware that, you know, for instance, sometimes if there is a problem, there's like an abrupt end to the relationship. Um, mm. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that impact and also you know if you have any suggestions around that yeah I I mean I think that's a, a fantastic question because a lot of my work is supporting families through the litigation process and um 
no family that I've met in all the time that I've been doing this, they all come with two of the fundamental reasons why they are pursuing litigation. It's never for the monetary value. It is they want an acknowledgement and an apology for what has happened. So that sense of righting a wrong, even though it won't change the outcome necessarily. And they don't want it to happen to another family. And so I have mediated actually between when you sit down with the maternity staff, the midwife and the obstetricians and the family and how incredibly reparative that can be. Because if something fundamentally has gone wrong and you're either psychologically traumatized, your baby has died perhaps, or you or your baby have been left with life-changing injuries, so your, your life is never going to be the same again. You want an element of being able to have that closure Did that person know the impact that they have had on me? Did they know that in that moment what they did had a life-changing effect? And have they learned from it? And in the absence of those conversations, I think that is something that a lot of families are left wondering. Have they learned And are they truly sorry? So they might get an apology from the hospital, but is that midwife or that obstetrician sorry? And I also hear it from the midwives and obstetrician side where they are like, we just want to say sorry. We just need that acknowledgement and to explain why we made those decisions or why we didn't make those decisions and say we're sorry. Do you know, no healthcare professional gets into their line of work to cause harm. Do you know, certainly, thankfully, not in my career to date have I met any staff who want to cause harm. That is furthest from what is important to them. And so being able to have that space where they can try and begin that reparative process for both, I think is massive. And in the absence of doing that, that's a lot of what my work is, trying to hold that for the families that they may never get the answers that they need and for the staff that they may never get the forgiveness from the families that they desire. Hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I think... There is something so healing to have that human to human connection. Mm. It's hard for both sides. And I just would really love to see that be more commonplace where Mm. there's that opportunity. Can I'll tell one more quick personal story if I might. And then I will promise I'll stop talking about myself. So I had to go in to for a follow up visit for myself with my OB while my daughter was in the NICU. Mm. And I had a the physician who delivered my baby was not the one I had been seeing during my pregnancy. Mm. She she was on call that night. So she came in. And so I had my follow up with her. And when I told her what was going on, that my baby had an infection was in the NICU, her eyes teared up a little bit and she gave me a hug. And it was mm-hmm. so, I mean, it wasn't the situation where she was involved in, you know, yeah, yeah. the problem, but I felt that felt so wonderful to me. I switched mm-hmm. <laughs> nothing. There was nothing against my previous mm-hmm. OB, but I just felt like so understood by her. And I think mm-hmm. in medicine, sometimes the culture is that, you know, we have to be clinical and we can't mm-hmm. be expressing that kind of thing but it just meant a lot to me it was just so kind of her Um, and I think the kindness is something that we massively can show because we all want in that moment of vulnerability someone and it sounds like what that obstetrician done is she's seen you 
She's seen your anguish and your pain and she was willing to get alongside you with it. That takes a vulnerability in her to reach out to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, I really appreciate it. To this day, I'm very grateful to her, Mm. to that nine years later. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and it is those small acts of kindness for sure. In your book, you write a lot about the systemic and culture factors that are important to address here, I think, in in healthcare in general and specifically in maternity. And I know that you do some work with organizations creating psychologically safe and positive working cultures. How do you create that in your team and in your life? How do you um, create an environment like that? Because perhaps the ways in which you and your team care for yourselves could be a good example for others. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I suppose I'm thinking, I hope my team do feel that, that you know, cared for and, and safe. So I guess I very much try to have a flattened hierarchy. So although I am the director of the service, we have very peer-led things, you know, and it feels very collaborative. What I always say is we don't have to feel kind to be kind. You know, kindness is a verb, love is a verb. So we can act and behave in ways that show each other that we're kind. But it's also acknowledging we work in a really hard space, do you know, and in doing that, I set up things so that staff know that they are valued and they're cared for. So, for example, if we are doing an intense um, project, what I will do is I will set up weekly drop-ins for everyone to come with cakes, with tea, and they can just share whatever is needed to share. Um also, we I make myself available from actually blocking out time. People can go on there and just, you know, book in to see me. They've got my calendar. They can just um, book themselves in. And I do that more in small ways as well. So when I check in and say, how are you? It's not a, oh, how are you? And we start talking about something else. It's creating the space where I am able to spend time and really listen to how they are. Also, it's being civil. Do you know, it's being respectful. And when someone acknowledges and we have um, success in the team, it's a shared success. Do you know, everyone massively champions one another on, which is so incredibly great to be part of it's I feel really lucky to be part of um, the team and we have fun do you know so we have everybody is a whatsapp group now don't they so we share a lot of lightness and a lot of laughter on there as well some humor yeah yeah absolutely well you do hard work challenging work I'm sure it's very um you know, emotionally exhausting at times. And I think there's, you know, there's that high level structural change, there's the individual, you know, support that people need. But this is a very important level, just like having a supportive team, having people you can go to during the Mm -hmm. ups and downs and laugh with and be be honest with. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And it's It's also being able to give feedback to one another, you know, honest feedback, but actually it's fed back in a way that is respectful and kind. Wonderful. Okay, the final question here. I'm concerned about people who might be listening to this episode who are pregnant or who may someday mm. <laughs> plan to give birth. Um, again, you're not alone. It's the words I read, it's hard and you can do it, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's not always hard, but it can be very hard and you yeah. can do it and scary. Do you have any advice for people who might have birth in their future? Yeah. Um, I think it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of our conversation, Debbie. Birth is on a continuum, do you know, and we are all on that continuum somewhere. 
what I would say is what people share with you. There, I don't know what it was like for you, but in my pregnancies, whenever people seen that I was pregnant, it was like they had no filter. They just started to talk about their own births, you know, irrespective of how it was. It's okay to put in boundaries, you know. You don't need to absorb everyone else's experiences. But also, what support do you need to enjoy your antenatal experience, to enjoy your birth and experience and have that support that you would need postnatally as well? That's great advice. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, Jan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, And congratulations on your multiple books that you have out and in the works and really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you for inviting me and for having the conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Me too. Thank you, Jan. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.